saith the reading of God's word. Exodus 17, 8 through 16. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses's hands grew weary so they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands one on one side and the other on the other side so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword then the Lord said to Moses write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek under from under heaven And Moses built an altar and called the name of it. The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is the word of God. Good morning, family of God. I brought some props this morning, and I hope you like them. I actually didn't bring them. They're above me. So if you look over here on this side of the of the gym, you'll see what says Oklahoma All Staters. And though you can't see the names written on those uh, plaques, there are 14 sets of names, 14 years in which Santa Fe South has had student athletes who became All Staters. If you look on this side, you will see some banners for Santa Fe South soccer and cross country, specifically where they came in as state runner-ups for the state championship. And I want to point out one of those. If you look on the top right, you'll see 2017. If you go all the way to the left, you'll see 2006 state runner-up. Now, that was my first year to teach at Santa Fe South High School. I started in 2005, 2006 was the spring, and I was teaching juniors English that year in which we went to the championship and played soccer against Kasha Hall from North Oklahoma and lost. I believe the score was two to zero. And we lost that game. It was a a difficult game because we had a winning season. We had a winning coach, uh, Coach Brewster. Some of you guys know Chris Brewster was the coach of that team that year. And they came up just shy of the state championship. There was a student who was a freshman that year named Santiago Preciado. And he was a freshman on that team. And, in fact, he will show up over here on the Oklahoma All-Staters List Because in 2009, when he was a senior, he scored 35 goals in the season, more goals than anybody else in the state. And he helped lead that team to what you see up here, which is the 2009 state championship in soccer, in which they played Kasha Hall from North Oklahoma and beat them two to one. Now, I find that really exciting because I'm a saint. 
Once a saint, always a saint, so they say. But what I find incredibly intriguing about this particular room in which we sit is we are sitting below banners. And let me tell you why that banner right there is so important. In preparation for this sermon, I went back and looked at some news articles from 2009. And one thing that I found was uh, one of my students who scored both goals in the title game who um, was interviewed. And in the interview, what he talked about was how it didn't really click how significant this win was for him and for the school until after the game, a, a fellow student came up to him and said, I want to get a picture with you. And she said, I want to get a picture with you. And they took a picture. And afterward, the reason why she wanted a picture was she said this. She said, there. Now I have a part in it, too. I have a part in winning, too. Now, this girl was not on the men's soccer team for Santa Fe South. But because she got a picture with the guy who scored two goals, now she had a part in the win, just like he did. She was part of the championship. Now, it may not seem significant to you that Santa Fe South would win a soccer championship because there's a bunch more that are up here as well that have come since 2009. But if you have, we need some context before this period of time, let me give you a little realm of what would happen with Santa Fe South sports. The girls basketball team would play in this gym where you're sitting right now. And one of the, the, the games that, that is not a highlight of their career is they lost in this gym by 99 points. Woodward outscored them 101 to 2 in this very gym. In 2006, their football team had a record that was not only not winning, but they went 0 and 10 in 2006, in 2005, in 2004. This is the, the record of Santa Fe South Athletics pre-2006-2009. So when these seniors come in and dominate the state with a winning record and bring home the championship from Casher Hall, who they had lost to four years before, this is a big deal. And this is such a big deal that we're going to not only say that we are champions, but we're going to put up a banner in our gymnasium to remind you and remind everybody who walks in this gym, even if they defeat us, that we are still champions. Banners exist to remind us of previous victory and to remind our enemies, those that might come against us, that we are and have been and will continue to be victorious. Everyone say victorious. You see a name on the screen, and that name is Jehovah Nisi. The name that we hear in this text today is the, is the name Jehovah Nisi, Yahweh Nisi, which means the Lord is my banner. Now, banners are used for a number of different things. One thing they're used for is they're used to signal an attack. That, that if you see the, 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 the skull and crossbones on a flag on a ship coming towards you, you know that you are in danger. I'm, I'm thinking about that because my wife and I just watched Pirates of the Caribbean just a few, a few days ago. My first time seeing it, I know, I'm old, just call me not modern. But when you see that skull and crossroads coming, uh, 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 crossbones coming towards you, you know that the enemy is near and you need to get out of their way because they are on the attack. And when you see a champion coming towards you and they are on the attack, you know the only defensive posture that you have is to retreat because you're going to lose. 
Now, banners don't just, just, don't just mean attack. They also mean victory. They signal this is a place where we have been victorious. When you go to New York and you walk into Madison Square Garden and you walk in and you see what's hanging from the rafters, you know, I am walking into a place where people have been dominated for ages upon ages upon ages. You don't come in here and just claim this court. This is not my home. I don't belong here. Those are not my banners, which is what Santa Fe South is trying to do here with this banner. I want to tell you, Christian, that everywhere you go, regardless of how you feel, where you go, you walk with a banner above you which says, God is my banner. God is my victory. I have overcome. Nothing can stop us because God will prevail. He did prevail and he will prevail and nothing can stop that. So anything that comes against you in your life, whatever you might be facing, whether it's an emotional difficulty or a financial difficulty or relational difficulty, you can know with confidence that if you are in Christ, if you have trusted that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, rose again, took victory over the, over the, over the greatest enemy ever, which is death, and defeated it and now sits on the right hand of God, that anywhere you go, anywhere in the world, you can know you go with God's victory. Yahweh Nisi, Jehovah Nisi, God is my banner. Now, this is an important word for us today. It's an important word for the people of Israel that we're going to read about in this story because they didn't have a mindset that would believe that God was their banner. Now, they should have. We're going to talk about that. But they did not, which you saw last week. But yet, everywhere they go, they walk in power because God is their banner. Now, you may be facing some stuff in your life today that may make you think, I don't know if God has the victory in this area. And I want to pray that we would have minds that would be renewed this morning to believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and therefore we have overcome. So would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray one more time. Let's pray that the Holy Spirit would help us to understand this truth, to get this deep inside of our hearts, that we might walk with victory everywhere we go. Father, I thank you that you are a God who reigns victorious. You are the champion. Nothing can stop you. I pray that you would help us this morning to get this word, that you are our banner, the only banner worth holding, and that in you we are victorious. Make that truth go down deep. The places where we want to fight you this morning, wrestle us till our hips are dislocated. Wrestle us till we know our new name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me give us some background to this text. We are walking into this text with the people of Israel. If you haven't been with us, we've been walking through the book of Exodus, and we have seen God's people, and we've been walking with them, and they have been experiencing God in reality. And we have been seeing that they are a 
presence people. They are a pilgrimaging people. They are a protesting people, but they are a promised people. I want to share that with you. So this is a presence people. These people have are walking in the glorious presence of Yahweh who has liberated them from slavery and oppression. Remember we talked about last week that everywhere God's people have gone, even in the midst of their complaint, they are being led by a pillar of cloud that stretches from earth all the way to heaven that in the night will light up with fire. God has displayed an incredible glory that he is with his people, that he will not leave them. He will not leave them. That everywhere they go, even when they get thirsty, even when they get tired, God is with them. This is a presence people. This is also a pilgrimaging people. They are walking through a physical wilderness. They're in the desert. They get hungry. They get thirsty. They get tired. They're walking and walking and walking. A few weeks ago, we talked about how this is the people who are on their way. Everyone say, on their way. On their way. They're not standing still. They are moving in a direction. And that direction is toward the promised land of God, the place where there will be no more need. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more desperation. There will be no more tiredness. They will sit in a place that is filled with milk and honey. This is a pilgrimaging people. They are not stuck in the wilderness. They are moving through the wilderness to God's destination, to the promised land. This is a protesting people. They are walking not only through a physical wilderness, but through a spiritual wilderness of sin that is characterized by cycles of sin, which God is interrupting with his refining grace. Last week, we looked at this text in the beginning of, of Exodus chapter 17, in which, in which we find God's people at Massa and Meribah, and they are complaining. But they aren't just complaining like they had been, but their complaining is getting worse. And they have entered into a cycle of complaining that has treated their complaining and their grumbling, for now they are quarreling with Moses and quarreling with God. God's people are fighting with him, even though he is providing for them at their every step and their every need. He's provided manna for them. He's provided quail for them. Last week we saw Moses hit a rock and, 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 and water came from a rock. I was talking with Alejandro about this this past week and he was telling me something that I hadn't thought about. Maybe he's having a conversation with one of you. And he was saying that it's incredible that God is so sovereign that from the beginning of time he would know, he would he'd put this rock in this place in such a way that he would know that decades and millennia from now or however long god my people are going to be walking through the desert and they're not going to trust me and i'm going they're going to get thirsty and i'm going to have this rock here so that moses will hit it and water's going to come out of this rock doesn't make doesn't make sense but god in his sovereignty has planned grace for them so that even in the midst of their fighting with him he still provides for their every physical need With his refining grace. And this is a promised people. So a presence people, a pilgrimaging people, a protesting people, a promised people. They're walking with purpose toward his promised land. And today what we're going to find out is that even when God's people fight with him, he proves himself not only capable, not only able, but committed to fighting for them. When you find yourself fighting God. And you experience that conviction. Don't get discouraged. Because the reason you have that conviction is because God never stopped fighting for you. We find in this text today is a God who fights for his people. 
Look with me at this text. We see in verse in the first verse in this, we see that the first thing that we see is that Amalek has come against the people of God. It says, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. In the same place they were at last week. Last week they were thirsty. Last week God gave them water. This week their thirst is quenched, but now they have enemies that are coming from without. They have Amalek that's coming and that's fighting with them. Now this is may not mean much to us today because we may not know who Amalek is, but Amalek is an important name in the Bible. Everybody say Amalek. Amalek is important. Amalek, we know, is a descendant of Esau. We find that out from, from the book of Genesis. But Deuteronomy 25 gives us a more complete picture of what is actually going on here in this first verse when it just says, Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. In Deuteronomy 25, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to flip over to, to Deuteronomy 25, verse 17. If you have your smart devices, I encourage you to do this. because This is an important verse to give us some context for something really important that we're going to hear about who God is and really important thing we're going to hear about his character and his provision that I think is really important for us. In Deuteronomy 25, verse 17, we read these words. It says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. So he's talking about this event. When you came out of Egypt, you crossed the Red Sea. God provided for you, met your every need. He, he judged the enemies of God and he provided for them. He led them through the wilderness. Here's what happened. Amalek did this to you as you came out of Egypt. Verse 18 says how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Everyone say Amalek. So Amalek, what he's done is he's, he's come around to those who are lagging behind in the people of Israel. It's probably the elderly, probably the tired, probably those who might even be disabled in some way. These are people who are not at the front of the people. They're at the back of the people. Now, you know who's at the back of the people. People at the, at the back of the classroom, at the back of the line. These are the ones that couldn't get into first place. These are the ones that are not the strongest who are leading. These are the ones who are at the back who are barely hanging on. And Amalek comes along and he attacks those people, attacks them, takes them out, kills them. He's trying to stop the journey of God's people as they are making their way toward the promised land. One Old Testament commentator says, because the Amalekites had been the first nation to try to destroy God's people as they journeyed to the promised land, God promised Moses that he would be at war with them from generation to generation. God, God loves his people and has no desire that his people should be thwarted in his attempts to bring them into the land that he's promised them. And so God is committed to the welfare of his people. He's committed to destroying all those who might come against the, the, the progress of his people toward the promised land. And specifically, God has a heart for these vulnerable who are at the back of the people. Now, we know that God has a heart for the vulnerable all throughout Scripture. We see this, but I think it's very pronounced in the book of Job. In Job chapter 29, we read these wise words of, of Job as he is answering in one of his discourses, and he says this. He says in Job 29 verse 2, he says, Oh, that I were as in the months of old as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness as I was in my prime. 
when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. Now, if you know the story of Job, you know what he's talking about. Job was a man who was blessed beyond belief. Job was a man who had 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 seven sons and three daughters, who had who had scores of of cattle and goats and sheep. He was a wealthy man who had experienced all of the delights of this earth. And yet, yet, Satan came to God and said, let me just, let me just, let me just take some of this stuff away from him and see if he's really going to still praise you. Remember this story? Let's just see what he's going to do. And, and, and Satan came and, 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 and took out his, his sons and his daughters. He took out all of his possessions. He took out all of his wealth, expecting that Job was then going to curse God. But Job didn't curse God. Job stayed faithful to God. And then Satan came back to God and said, hey, he's still praising you because you haven't touched, haven't touched him. If you just, because he still has, he still has his health. If he doesn't have that, then he's not going to be worth anything. He's going to curse you and he's going to, he's going to, he's going to give up his faith in you. So he goes back and, and succumbs Job to this, to boils and to disease. But we know the story that Job did not succumb to this. So, so what Job is describing in this text is what his life was like before he lost it all, which was that he experienced the physical blessings of God. And he said, that's what my life was like. I was a man who was deeply respected. My steps, the rock even poured out for me streams of oil. In other words, everything that, that, was, that was at my disposal, I didn't even think I wanted, everything was at my disposal. I lived a life of, of luxury. And I want to describe to you, I'm going to that place in Job to describe to you what it looks like to walk in the wisdom of God, to walk in the fear of God, to walk as a person who is wise, who has only God to fear. It says this in verse 11 of Job 29, one of my favorite passages about justice in the Bible. It says this. When the ear heard, it called me blessed. And when the eye saw, it approved because, verse 12, I delivered the poor who cried for help. And the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me. And I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. And I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. You know what Job says? Job says, I was wise in the way I treated the vulnerable. I cared for the blind. I cared for the needy. I cared for the fatherless. I cared for the widow. I cared for those who were strangers. I cared for those who were sick. I cared for those who were in prison. I cared for those who had nobody else to look out for them. I cared for them. Why did Job do that? Because those people are at the, are at the very heart of God. We see this running through the entire narrative of Scripture, that God has a heart for the vulnerable. In Matthew 25, Jesus himself even says, I am with those. When you help them, you help me. So when Amalek comes across and and cuts off the vulnerable, he's cutting off those who are at the very heart of God. And God says, I will not let them suffer any longer. I will take care of those who are vulnerable. You cut off them, I cut off you. This is my judgment. And it is just and it is righteous and it is right. We may hear the end of this passage in our scripture today and say, why would God ever want to cut off Amalek? Isn't that unjust? And what God is saying is Amalek is a type who is against the plans and the purposes of the goodness of God. Anything that comes against the plans and the purposes of the goodness of God, God will take out. 
for our good. And that is really good news. When God's judgment comes, the people praise him because he is righteous. He is saying is that I will cut off all who will thwart the purposes of my goodness, who will cut off the ways of my people. That's what he's saying when he says, I will cut off Amalek. These people did not fear God. They cut off those who were faint and who were weary. That's what's happening in this first verse of our text. And so God has a way with them. I want to walk through this story. How does God do this? Well, he doesn't use the tactics that we would be accustomed to. He doesn't come with his best military strategy. Moses comes up to Joshua and says, hey, Joshua. Now, we haven't met Joshua yet. Joshua is a new character. We said Amalek. Everybody say Joshua. Joshua. Now, when I say Joshua, I've got a couple people in my mind. I've got my, got my son in my mind. I've got my, some, some, some people that are coming before me. My family i got, got in my mind. But we named my son Joshua after this character who is Joshua. Now, Joshua's name means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. When we get to the New Testament, the name Joshua becomes the name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the one who came to show us that Yahweh is the only one who gives us true salvation. He's the one that delivers us from all of our enemies. Anything that could thwart us, anything that can come against us, Jesus is the one who is our victor all the time. Now, Moses tells Joshua, Yahweh saves. He tells him, he says, hey, I want you to go and fight Amalek. Now, Amalek knows what they're doing. They've come on the offensive. And Joshua, Moses says, I want you to take some men. He didn't say, take your best soldiers. He says, take some men. Go get some people. And I want you to go out and fight these guys. Now, if the president of the United States came to me and said, Chauncey, you're the new general. I want you to go get some of your friends and I want you to go fight the enemies that are coming against our country. Now, I have no idea what I would do. No idea. I might call Matthew Beasley. He was in the Air Force. Right? That's about all I would know to do. I don't know anything else to do. I don't know how to do this. Joshua, as far as we know, has not been trained for this kind of combat. But look at what he does. Look at what he does in verse 10. He says, Joshua did as Moses told him. He did it. He obeyed what Moses said. Moses is a servant of God. God tells him to do something. I'm, I'm just going to go do that. Obedience is the key. He did it. He had faith in what Moses had told him. Now, we didn't talk about what else Moses said. Moses said, choose for us men, go out and fight. Joshua did it, but Moses told the rest of the plane. He said, I'm going to go, I'm going to stand on this hill. I'm going to go stand up on this hill. You go fight, I'm going to go stand on this hill. Now, you ever been in a situation in which your leader told you to go out in front of the people who were fighting, metaphorically, and they said, and I'm going to go home. I'm going to go look at you, try to thwart these enemies. How does that make you feel? You ever felt abandoned in your hour of need by friends who you thought were supposed to be close to you? You ever felt like your leaders just kind of up and left you with nothing to trust in? Moses says, Joshua, go fight this battle. I'm going to go up in this hill. Why would Joshua ever want to obey Moses? I think we find it in the rest of this verse, in verse 9. He says, I'm going to go stand on top of this hill with the staff of God in my hand. The staff of God's in his hand. 
Now, why is the staff of God important? Well, if you've been walking with us through Exodus, you know about the staff of God. God gave Moses this staff way back in Exodus chapter 4. Take this with you wherever you go. And he gave him some signs. So when Moses gets to, Israel, Moses gets to Egypt, he does some things with this staff. He threw this staff on the ground. It became a snake and ate up the little snakes of, of Egypt. Moses stretched out that staff over the Nile River, and that Nile River became blood. Moses stretched out that, Nile, that staff over the Nile River again, and then frogs came up out of this Nile River. Moses hit the dirt with his staff, and the dirt became like flies all over Egypt. Moses stretched out the, 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 this staff over the Red Sea, and the east wind began to blow, and the waters parted, and God's people walked through on dry land. And then came crashing down on the enemies of God. There's something about this staff. Now, I think this is important because it matters whose stick it is. And what Joshua knows is that this is no ordinary staff. This is the staff of God in the hand of the servant of God. Now, I think this is important for us because it matters what you have in your hand. It matters what you have in your hand. When you're walking into your fear, when you're walking into your anxiety, are you walking in clinging to the promises of God or are you walking in clinging to some kind of modern psychology? What do you have in your hand? When you walk into that difficult conversation, that confrontation that you know is necessary to bring peace, but you don't want to have the conversation. Are you walking in with the promises of God that he's going to make a way and make peace for you? Or are you walking with your own insecurities? What are you walking in? What what do you have in your hand? When you're walking into that situation that you can't get out of, that financial difficulty or or that emotional difficulty that you can't seem to get over, that cycle of sin, what are you walking in? Are you walking with the promises of God that he is victorious over your every need? Or are you walking in with fear of man or previous experiences where you were disappointed? What do you have in your hand? What Joshua knew is that what Moses walking up on this mountain, on this hill with, was with the staff of God in his hand. And that makes all of the difference. So Joshua does this. He goes out and he fights with, with Amalek. Moses, Aaron, and Hur go up to the top of the mountain. And what happens is whenever Moses would raise his, his hand, raise the staff of God, the Israelites would begin to push back the Amalekites. But as Moses was an old man and his arms would get heavy and the minutes would change to 10 minutes and the 10 minutes would change to hours and the hours would change to multiple hours, his arm would get heavy and it would begin to droop. And as his arms descended, the Amalekites begin to push back the Israelites. Now, Aaron and her see what's, what's happening and they think we got to do something about this. We got to jump in this. So Aaron and her go and they pick up a stone and they carry it and they put it underneath Moses and Moses sits down and they pick up his arms and he's able to keep his hands elevated for the rest of the battle. And the Israelites prevail 
over the Amalekites. This is a miracle. This is not something that it can be explained by just military strategy. I tell you what, if you want a military strategy, if you just say, I'm going to go fly over the army and they're going to win, it doesn't make any sense. But in this sense, we have, we have God making a promise to his people. I'm going to be with you. And Moses taking the staff of God and going on the hill and we see Israel thwarting their enemies. How? By a work of God. A work of God. I think there's four things we can learn from from this particular instance on what God has to say to us about how to encounter our specific problems. And they are this. One, yes, Joshua's name means Yahweh saves, but Joshua had to fight in this battle. Joshua had to fight. The Israelites would not have thwarted, would not have overcome, would not have disabled the Amalekites unless Joshua had entered into the battle. And I think this hits at one of the idols in our culture today, which is the idol of passivity or indolence. That somebody else is going to come along and do what God has called me to do. And so often we can get into a realm of thinking that if I just sit back, then God's best is going to end up coming because God is sovereign. And what God tells us is that, yes, he saved us for goodness, but we also have to walk in that goodness he's called us to. He didn't save us for passivity. He saved us for courageous initiative in the plans of God. Courageous initiative in the plans of God. If you look in the book of Colossians chapter 2, We read these words, it says in verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that's all of us, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And this is the truth is the reality for everyone who is in Christ. If you've trusted in Jesus, you have no shame. No guilt anymore. Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God has conquered all of our sin. He has taken it upon himself. He has destroyed the guilt and the shame. And yet in the next chapter, in chapter three, he says, therefore, put to death. Therefore, your flesh. Crucify that which would hold you back from running. We read this in Hebrews chapter 12. Throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles in order to run the race that's marked out for us. So we have a responsibility for courageous initiative in the goodness and the plans of God in order to see his goodness prevail. Joshua had to fight. But not only did Joshua have to fight, one thing we see in this text is that sometimes God's strategy may not make sense to us. His strategy may not make sense to us. There's an idol that, that, that we can wrestle with in our culture, which is the idol of competence. That I have to fully understand everything that's going on in order for me to fully invest in what's going on. But what God calls us to is to, he says, the righteous will live by faith. In Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, he says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. 
See, what God calls us to is to a, a competence that is, is finding our identity only in the commands and the promises of God. I am competent only so much that I am dependent on God for my victory. His strategy may not make sense to us, and yet we can be fully competent in God. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says, I may sound like I'm preaching foolishness, but my foolishness is the wisdom of God. It was foolish that Jesus would come as the incarnate son of God and die on a cross at the hands of wicked sinners. That did not look like the best strategy. It looked like the best plan. But through that seemingly incompetent plan, God demonstrated his immortal competence, his infinite competence, by making his plans prevail in the midst of that seeming incompetence. God's strategy may not make sense to us, but when we persist in his strategy, it's going to reveal that God alone was our victor. The third thing we might learn from this, this text is that we need help to exercise faith in the promises of God. See, Moses was God's man. Moses had been chosen from way out shepherding sheep to come and be God's man to redeem his people. But even Moses, God's man, needed help to hold his hands up. Who are you trusting to hold your hands up? When you find yourself being too impatient with your son or your daughter, who are you calling to get help with that? When you find yourself neglecting some of your responsibilities, who's helping you stay accountable? Who's being your community? When you're having trouble believing who God's made you to be, who's praying for you? Who's with you? I want to encourage you, church, take a second right now and just look around. Look around the people that are sitting around you. Now, these people are here because they love the God we're talking about. People are here because they have experienced that Jesus is victorious. These people are here because they have experienced that Jesus has overcome sin, death, and the grave. These people are here because they love you. Because when you sign that piece of paper, that, that, that membership covenant, what you're saying is that I am committed to the good of these people. I am going to seek their good above my own. Which means that they need you and you need them. And they're for you. And you're for them. So call them. Get on the phone. Have coffee. Let's, let's continue to thrive together as we strive together to exercise faith in the promises of God. Because like Bonhoeffer says, sometimes the faith in my brother's heart can be stronger than the faith in my heart. I need you to hold my hands up. You need me to hold your hands up. Sometimes a brother got to sit down. I need somebody to come pick up that boulder so I can have a seat and watch the victory of God. But this goes against an idol that we have in our culture, which is the idol of independence. Especially in individualistic American culture, which I grew up in, I'm a product of. I have a tendency to think that my maturity looks like my growing independence. I am more mature when I have, I'm paying my own bills. 
when I have my own house, when I have a dog and the dog doesn't have something go wrong in the middle of the summer because I didn't feed him. I, my maturity looks like my growing independence. The more I can get off on my own, the better off I'm going to be. But that seems it's counter, it's counter to what we see in the biblical narrative. Sure, we want to be mature people who, who are people who can be depended on. But what God calls us to is to a mutual burdensomeness. He says that we fulfill the law of Christ when we bear each other's burdens. We are called to be interdependent, to have a dependence on other people. Not to be independent, but to be further dependent. My maturity in Christ looks like me growing in my dependence on him. And therefore my dependence on everybody else, on his people. And as I grow in that dependence, I find out more of who God's made me to be. And I grow in maturity in who he's called me to be. So we need help to exercise faith in the promise of God. And this is a sign of maturity, not immaturity, as the culture may say. The fourth thing that I want to talk about in this text I think is really important is that God has given us memorials to help us remember that our daily battles are not in vain. And I think this is the most important part of this. If you haven't been listening for the rest of this time, I encourage you to listen now. If you go to the end of this text, what we read is this. Verse 14 says, the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book. And recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, we may say, ask the question, why would God desire to have war with Amalek from generation to generation? And how is that war a promise? How can war ever be a promise to God's people? I think if we want to get the answer to that question, we've got to remember, who is the war against? Who is the war against? Now, in this case, we already talked about how Amalek is a type a type of enemy that comes against God's people as they take a pilgrimage toward God's promises. Which if you're in Christ, this is, the destiny, this is where we all are. We are all just like Joshua, in between the already and the not yet. The already, God has liberated us from the, from, from the, from the penalty of sin. He, is, he has liberated us. From the shame of sin. He's liberated us from the guilt of our sin. We are free in Christ to love and have a relationship with him. We are headed toward a promised land. We are headed toward a place in which there will be no more presence of sin. No more broken relationships. No more bad consequences. No more tears. No more war. No more anger. No more divorce. No more depression. No more suicide. No more murder. No more anarchy. No more terrorism. No more racism. All that's going to be done away with. That's, where we're, that's a promised land. We're going to have everything that we need and everything that is evil is going to be done away with. And yet we're just like Joshua in between the already and the not yet. And what God tells Moses Notice, this is the first time that God's name shows up is in verse 14. The Lord says to Moses, write this as a memorial and put it in whose ears? In Joshua's ears. In Joshua's ears. Why Joshua's ears? 
Because by the time we get to Joshua, Joshua chapter 1, God's people are going to be through the wilderness. and They're going to be ready to enter into the promised land. And God's going to give Joshua a bunch of, of, of different commands. But the main one he's going to give him, he's going to say, do not be afraid. Fear not as you walk into my, into my promises. Don't be afraid. You've got to believe I'm going to be with you. How do I know you're going to be with me, God? What is the sign you're going to be with me, God? Remember that very first battle you had? Remember the very first battle you had against Amalek? Against the first one who wanted to stop you from getting to my promised land? Remember what happened when Moses went up on that hill and raised the staff of God in his hand? Remember how it was not your power that defeated the Amalekites when you were on the ground trying to fight with your sword? Remember how it was God that won your battle for you? You remember that? Well, it's in that power that I'm calling you to walk forward now. That's where I'm calling you to go. Because what God is saying to him is that I will make war with everything that's going to come against you. I am battling your enemies. I will forever battle your enemies. I am committed to battling your enemies. What enemies do you have today, church? What is keeping you from believing the promises of God? What is trying to thwart your thinking that God isn't for you? What is trying to take your heart? Who's trying to steal your hope? Who's trying to damage God's reputation in your mind? God is at war with that. He is fighting it. And if God is fighting it, it has no chance. You see, when I play 2K, which isn't very often, you can be a nine-year-old kid and defeat me. Why? Because the stick is in my hands. If I got the stick, I'm going to lose. I'm just not that good at 2K. But if you find a 15-year-old that plays this game instead of studying and going to class, it's going to be 101 to 2. Why? Because it matters whose stick it is. Moses built an altar, and he named this altar not Moses is my banner. No, it wasn't about Moses' hands being raised. He didn't name the altar Joshua is my banner. No, it wasn't about Joshua. Joshua was losing and winning at the same time. It wasn't about the Amalekites, because the, the Amalekites, they weren't powerful enough to defeat Jehovah Nisi. God, Moses built an altar and he called this altar, Yahweh is my banner. Yahweh is my victory. He says, the only reason this piece of wood matters is because this is the staff of God. 
it matters whose hand it's in. Now this morning, I want us to contemplate and think and ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, I've been struggling with fill in the blank. What have I been rallying around that wasn't you? What have I been holding up as my triumph that wasn't you? Is it my personality I've been trusting in? Is it the brand that I'm associated with that I've been trusting in? Is it my methods that I've been trusting in? Is it my convenience I've been trusting in? Is it my political affiliation I've been trusting in? Is it my identity as a social justice advocate that I've been trusting it in? Is it my nationalism I've been trusting in? Is it my anti-nationalism I've been trusting in? What have I been trusting in? What have I been depending on? What have I been triumphing in that's not you? And I want to encourage us to just say, God, that's not my banner anymore. Yahweh is my banner. Jehovah Nisi. God is the power that keeps me pressing on toward his promised land. God is the one who will not stop until he brings me into the land he has promised me. Jesus' death is a sign that not even death could stop God from fulfilling his promises for me and for us. Church, I want to encourage us to trust in Jehovah Nisi, to pray with the psalmist in Psalm 44 who said, For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. As we go to the Lord's table today, let's remember that Jesus is our overcomer. That the God we're talking about today is the God fully revealed in Jesus Christ who gave himself up for us so that we could believe his promises. We would know that what he has promised will come to fruition. Why don't you bow your heads with me and pray. Lord God, I, we confess today our need for you. We confess today that There is no other good besides you. That everything, every good gift has its origin in you alone. We want to reject the worldly philosophy that I can trust in my independence or my self-sufficiency or my competence to be my Savior. And we want to say that, Lord, you are our Savior. You are our victor. You are the banner that we're going to lift up. God, I thank you for routing our enemies. And I pray that we would walk forward in hope and in courage and in love today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.